Well, good morning. You can be seated. It's a pleasure to be here with you after Christmas. I can see some of you are wearing maybe some of your gifts, which is always a good thing. I know that when Brooke and I were back with some of our parents this last week and we missed this Sunday, I remember sitting in the church that we were attending and, and just feeling like I was not where I ought to be. And so it's good to be back with you and especially good to be back with you in the case of God's word. There are some things in the scriptures that are so shocking and so unsettling that you just need to stare at them and make sure that you have all of your ducks in the row because if the Bible is really saying what we read it to say, we have to listen to it. I remember when I was in the 10th grade taking world history and there was a season in class where some of us in the class were more joking around than paying attention. Our teacher gave us what she called a come to Jesus meeting where the line was drawn of who will receive her wrath and who will not receive her wrath. And it woke us up. And in similar fashion, there are things that happen in the New Testament that make us, well, they astound us in such a way. Because how could people be acting the way they were acting? And then at just the right time, it looks like Jesus gives them a come to Jesus meeting. Where a line is drawn in the sand. And a rebuke in a way that they weren't preparing themselves for is given to them. Jesus, for years at this point, in the scripture that we'll encounter, had been presenting himself as the Lord. Matthew, in the book that we'll be in, is presenting Jesus as the longed-for and long-awaited Messiah. Yet people were disrespecting him at every turn. People were not only disrespecting him, people were disrespecting what he was doing. People were disrespecting the people who were following him. And even though he was continually serving other people, they were neglecting what he was doing altogether. They were saying that he was powerless, which is incredible to say to a guy who literally walks on water, or who rises, raises people from the dead, or who can prophesy correctly about the future, or who knows what's in people's hearts. They were saying that he was uneducated because he didn't have all the stature or the rank that they had given themselves. They were saying that he was undeserving of the actions that he was taking on other people. I'm not saying you should imagine yourself to be the Lord in this case, but imagine being seeing that scene where God, the Son, is being disrespected. How do you think he would react? How would you react if you were being disrespected? Alongside that, there are people who were following Jesus for years and for days and for months who are giving their lives over to this man. And they too were being ridiculed. They had the testimony, maybe like many of you here, they were dead in their trespasses and sins, but God being kind raised them from their spiritual death, from the passions of their own flesh. Being rich in mercy made them alive together with his son, yet people were looking at them and going, that's not good enough. You don't deserve to be seen with him even though he's a good guy. And so the scriptures that we'll encounter this morning show Jesus, the Lord, being ridiculed. And there's a moment where he's going to turn against people who are ridiculing him and he's going to speak to them. And then so let's see what he says. 
If you have a copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. So the chapter is the big number that you might see in the book of Matthew. If you're not used to the Bible, you're new to Christianity, maybe you've just walked into this church for no other reason except you just wanted to be here or felt like you need to be here, there are Bibles scattered around the room and feel free to go to the table of contents. Many people are still going there now. Go to the book of Matthew, open it to chapter 21. I'll be starting in verse 28. Reading this parable where Jesus speaks to his people. And I think when we see what Jesus is saying here, we can see a point of view from the Lord where he is telling the world in this case that you are accepted, not because of who you are, but by your repentance. You're accepted by God because of your repentance. And so we get this amazing picture and ability to see God for who he really is. So look at verse 28 as I read through a couple of verses. Lord's word says to us, what do you think? Man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Jesus here turns back to the people he's speaking to in verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into heaven, go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, You did not afterward change your minds and believe him. There are a couple of things that I want us to see this morning. Most notably is that what we're going to be doing or what I'm going to be speaking to you from for the next several weeks are a couple of parables in the New Testament. Uh, Parables in some ways are seen as stories that Jesus would tell. And I'll explain a little bit about parables in a moment. But what happens here is Jesus is encountering a constant state of people's denial. And so I think firstly what we can see is we can see Jesus' command of the situation. So if you're following along using the outline, I'm at number one where we can see Jesus' command. I asked you briefly before, what do, you, what do you think Jesus would do? Or what would he say in a situation where he's being ridiculed or counteracted in many ways? The scene here is that for a couple of days now, Jesus has gone into the city of Jerusalem. Almost the, the apex or the climax of what he had come to earth to do. Starting out on a Sunday, he asked people to go and retrieve a donkey for him echoing what was being told about him in the Old Testament. He would ride into town on a donkey and people were chanting, Hosea, Hosea. Yet other people were looking at him going, who do you think you are? And you need to get out of here. As he went into the town riding on a donkey, he also went into the temple. And rather than casually going into the temple, he saw the temple and people in the temple acting in ways that they shouldn't be acting. So he flipped over the temple, you could say. He turned everything upside down because this temple was his, is his father's temple. And he did not want it being disrespected at all in any way. So riding into town like a king as presented in the Old Testament or as what we have in the scriptures as our Old Testament and then going into the temple and flipping everything over 
the tension is rising of people who were already against him. But now the, temp- now the, the tension is rising for people in the temple because he's now disrupting all of their lives. He's going in this unranked, this uneducated, this lowly person, this carpenter from Nazareth. And it's almost like he's acting like he has all of the authority in the world. Now, we would look at that and go, well, he, he literally does have all the authority in the world. The scriptures are clear that Jesus, this person that we're talking about from the scriptures, actually created all of the world and created everyone within it. All things were made by him and through him, ultimately for his glory. And they hated him for that. They were questioning his authority. And so they asked him, by what authority are you doing this? And he told them in the passage just before ours this morning here, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from earth? And they didn't want to answer that because they knew the answer would actually indict them. So in the case of what would Jesus do with this raised tension where people are after him, if you're like me and your authority is questioned, your blood starts to boil and you lash out. You stumble over words that you didn't even know you knew how to say. And you're, you're just going after people. How dare you accuse me of what you're accusing? But here he takes the persona of actually someone who's in charge, not just of the situation, but he's in command. The fruits of the spirit that the scriptures talk about, he had all of those, all at the same time. This self-control that he's showing, he now takes that and gives these people a parable. So on this Tuesday morning, the week just before his death, he has command over the situation. And they're after him, yet he speaks in a parable. So Jesus here is going to double down and tell a parable, but actually at the same time indict these self-righteous people and their inability to see him for who he is. If they could see him for who he was and who he is, they would never in their right minds object to what he was doing. If anything, they would let him do everything he wants to do and ask how they can help out. So he asks a rhetorical question in verse 28. It says, what do you think? And then he begins to tell a parable. Parables, much like stories, although a little bit different, they, they have different angles of why they're used. In some ways, parables blind or deafen, or harden the heart of people who hear it. It's an interesting thing. When you read a parable and you have no idea what it's talking about, it might just be because what that parable is talking about is you. And if you had eyes to see, you'd be able to understand exactly what Jesus is. So Jesus is going to tell these people a parable in some way to indict them. The second reason Jesus would tell parables is to unveil amazing and unique mysteries about himself and about the truth of his word. So parables here are activating the hearer's minds. They're causing them to see things that they may not have been able to see if they just read the scriptures cleanly and plainly. So he's, what he's doing is a gift to them by speaking to them in a parable. And in this parable, he's unveiling things more so about the Sermon on the Mount. He's unveiling more so about the scriptures that he said where it's talking about the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He's unveiling things like what it means to actually have a hard heart. What does that look like? But through a series of parables, he's going to indict these Jewish leaders within their own temple. He's going to sentence them on what is actually going to happen to them. And then in the last parable, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, he's going to finish them off completely. So he's going after their minds. 
having command of the situation, not just in what he's practically doing, but also going after their minds, and through their minds he can reach their hearts. That's not abnormal to what we see in the scriptures. The scriptures are always going after people's minds. Like what has been happening for a year in our context in this church, we've been preaching through the book of Acts, where in the book of Acts, Paul and Peter and other apostles and other people are going from town to town, and they're speaking to people's minds. And when the scriptures are unveiled in our minds, it penetrates our hearts by the gifting of the Spirit. And so Jesus isn't responding to them with like hyper-emotionalism. He's not just freaking out or, or trying to slam his fist on the table like, how dare you? But he's in a wonderful, kind way speaking to them through this parable. So I want you to see Jesus' command. It's, it's incredible to think that he's always in control no matter the situation. Sometimes righteously, he overturns the temple. And in this case, righteously, he speaks to them to clearly draw a line in the, stand, in the sand. So second, I want you to know in, from this passage exactly who Jesus rejects. So I want you to see that he has command over the situation, but also through this line that he's drawing in the sand, I want you to be able to know who he's rejecting on one side. A couple of years ago, in 2011, a blockbuster uh, trial unveiled a verdict that shocked everyone. I remember sitting at my desk watching Twitter on my lunch break, waiting for the verdict to come out, and a woman who was accused of murdering her very young child had an entire case brought against her. She had been under lock and key for about three years at this point. The trial was lasting for about six weeks at this point. All of the world just knew without a shadow of a doubt that she was guilty. In fact, what is so incredible is that the prosecution brought 400 independent pieces of evidence against this woman. Like left no question that she did in fact murder her child. Now, what's so surprising, I think, to us is not that murder happened or not even that a loved one would murder a loved one. We, we see that all the time. We, we know that people are murdering people all the time. We, we see and seek justice in the world. But what was so amazing about this trial was not the horror of it, but ultimately what led to the verdict of not guilty was that no one actually saw her do it. She didn't tell anyone that she did it. No one, no one could really prove other than, you know, there was a hair here in the backseat of the car or she had Google searched some things along the way or she wasn't really a good mother at the time. But there was that smoking gun that was missing. And so the jury said, as much as we want to, we have this doubt in our mind. We don't know if she did it. I remember hearing that or seeing that and just... Like everyone else, the, the horror of it, the sadness of it, the long-lasting effect that this family would never be the same, this woman would never be the same, those in the jury box would never be the same. Everyone who's looking at Twitter on this will never be the same from this. And a couple of days later, I went jogging and I started thinking, if I was ever on trial for my faith, how many things could I add up about my faith, my Christianity? But, but is there one thing missing that would allow... God, the ultimate judge to say, you're not actually one of mine. And if there is, I've got to know what that is. 
And here in our case where Jesus is drawing a line in the sand, he lets us know ultimately who Jesus rejects. And the drama is building. So let me read again verse 28. Who, what do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son said, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to another son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, that the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Ultimately here, who does Jesus reject? Most notably in this context, he's saying that he is rejecting these chief priests These scribes, these elders, these people who have esteemed themselves as not only being in the temple and doing the things of God, but also pointing out who's in it, who's out on their own. And Jesus goes into the room and says, actually, you are out and and tells them that by the way of this parable. But he doesn't just say that, but it's like he doubles down on them by, by showing who ultimately would be in. If they're out as scribes and elders and tax collectors, then who would be in? He says, or scribes, elders, and chief priests, he says, who would be in ultimately those who are tax collectors and prostitutes? Look there at 31, verse 31, tax collectors and prostitutes. Most notably to society, the worst of the worst. Those who are longing for greed and pleasure and power and control over everything else. But ultimately, he says, those who will not be in the kingdom of heaven are those who do not believe. Look at verse 32. At the very end, it says, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. They had this not only sense of unbelief, but a stubborn sense of unbelief. They were supposed to know exactly what the prophet John the Baptist, the last great prophet in our scriptures said, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And they didn't do that. You might say, well, maybe they weren't in the room when John was talking. But it says there again in verse 31, And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Seeing the evidence of what John was talking about. Seeing the evidence of the fruit of people who were actually believing in the coming Messiah and the Christ as their Lord. They had a stubborn unbelief. Verse 32 says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. These people were acting as servants, but without repentance. What Jesus is saying is they're acting as the second son. Those who initially said, Of course I'll go and work in the vineyard, but then don't ultimately work in the vineyard at all. It's like everything had been offered to them on a platter and they just by their own decision decided not to eat. It's like every piece of equipment was given to them and they decided not to use it. Their disobedience with full opportunity is shown in our book in verse 30 right there. It kind of reminds me of Ezekiel Chapter 33, verse 31, where the Babylonians are gathering to hear from this prophet. And they they want to hear. They're telling everyone that they want to hear. But ultimately what is happening is they don't want to listen. They want to be entertained. What is happening to them is exciting and and unique, even though they're not listening. It says, and they come to you as people come. 
And they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, and their heart is set on their gain. They don't actually want to hear God's word. They want to be entertained. And in our case, these chief priests and elders and scribes, these self-righteous agents of the temple, they don't want to do the will of God. They just want their own agenda. They want to do their own will. So it's actually not surprising when Jesus encounters them and they question his authority because they're not just questioning his authority. They want their own authority to be in front of his. Which is astounding when you think of who Jesus is in his power, in his majesty, in his perfection, in his obedience, in his love, in his servanthood. How could they question that? Ultimately here, repentance is the smoking gun that is nowhere near them. They do not have a life that has anything except other than repentance. Repentance, scripturally, is the thorough change of a man's natural heart on the subject of sin. So what they ought to have seen is the first son, hopefully acting like that first son, where they were disobedient at first, but then turning from that disobedience and longing for the way of the Lord or the way of righteousness or the will of the Father. When scripture talks about sin, all of us are just like this first son, at least at the first part, where we all are disobedient naturally. We're born into life with this sinful nature, this natural inclination to disobey. I mean, anyone with a young parent would agree with that, right? They don't just wake up at two, year old, two years old going, I want to do this and I want to do that. And what do you know? It's perfect perfection. So discipline takes place. And here, they should have seen themselves like the first son, but they didn't act like him at all. They actually saw themselves as the second son, the one who would do the right thing, the one who would just naturally go, of course, I'll do the will of the father. And then he indicts them by describing the ultimate state of the second son. So instead of having sorrow, they had pride. And instead of turning to God, they stayed within the safe chambers of their rotten temple. And instead of trusting in the Lord for his will to be done, they are only trusting in their own ambition. They do not have a changed mind or a changed heart. And so Jesus, by this parable, draws this line in the sand by condemning them for their unbelief. So it's amazing that their lack of obedience actually shows what their heart truly is. Not longing for him. And the audience knew better. They knew better than this. Even chapters before, it says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. They profess to know God. Titus would later describe something like this. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And so Jesus is saying that ultimately in the kingdom of God, they will not go in. But those who will go in are much like the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Because when they heard the message of John, they turned. They believed. They repented. And I think this is a huge lesson for you and me, just practically, contemporarily. Do we trust in our activities? If, if we were put on any sort of trial... If we were longing for any decision from God on whether he accepts us, 
Do we put our trust in our activity? We better not according to this word. Verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when they saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This way of righteousness that Jesus says when he's speaking about John is the message that John brought to the world. This continuation of the Lord longing for his people where he's calling his people who by natural inclination are running away from him. And he's calling them to come back to the Lord. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it says in Matthew 3. Or Jesus says in Matthew 18, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And children, in Jesus' view, are, are humble people. People who are totally reliant on others around them for their well-being, their growth, their safety, their total acceptance. And so we can look at this and go, if I'm trusting in the activity that I'm doing, Rather than trusting in the direction of my heart, seeking after the way of righteousness, I'm trusting in the wrong thing. Jesus is exposing here their idolatry. All that they had seen, all that they should have known, all that they were unwilling ultimately to give up, at the risk of losing their authority, power, and place in society, their own religion, ultimately, he's showing, was serving themselves. Rather than being like the first son, and even though they stumbled at the beginning, they ultimately desired to do the will of the Father. And so what do you do if you are in their situation? If you come here this morning, or you've been coming here for a long time, and you look at this paradigm of one son who repents and one son who is stubborn and flees, what do you do? Ultimately, the Lord gives us exactly what we should do. We see it all over the place, but I think most notably in Isaiah 55, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. If you're in a place where you see that you have strayed far from the Lord and you want to return to him, the steps are to seek him. What's so incredible about that that statement, that passage, is it says, Seek the Lord while he is near. Time, it seems, is fleeting. Constantly seems that it's running out. Constantly seems like it's sweeping away. And the Lord continually gives warning shots. Like a shot across the bow. Seek him before time runs out. So they're called to seek the Lord. And as for the word that you have been spoken to us, the Lord says in his word, we do not want to be like these people in the temple who would not listen to him. But rather we want to be like the first son. We'll return to him. So within this passage, we can see the command that Jesus has. Don't don't forget the drama here, just through the explanation. Don't forget what's ultimately happening here in this case, where they're questioning who Jesus is. And what we would imagine in a calm setting, he turns the tables on them and indicts them. But he's also indicting them by using their own words. He asks them who ultimately did the will of the Father, and they said the first son. And he said, it's exactly right. And the first sons are like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. You would have to imagine that that would strike them as ridiculous or fearful. There is true danger, friend, and no repentance in your life. 
Because in the temporal times, you never actually get to enjoy the life that God has given you. Anyone who is all about themselves is happy for a little bit, right? And then it just constantly wears on them. You see this in marriages where people start to only pursue themselves in a marriage rather than pursuing their partner. And it may be fine for like one season, maybe even one year. But you get to that fifth year, that tenth year, that twentieth year, and the hardened heart realizes that there is no joy in this room. And ultimately, the Bible would say, no, duh, because it's all been about you, and you are not that incredible. Like, left to ourselves, we actually cannot do a lot. You know, I can drive myself to church today in a car that I didn't build, in gas that I didn't bring up from the ground, wearing clothes that I didn't make myself. But I drove myself to church. I'm doing really good for myself. Rather than relying no longer on ourselves, but relying on God to be ultimately our king. They were trying so desperately to be their own king in their own lives. So this is a great encouragement to us, as well as a danger or a shot. Repentance allows joy, not just now, but forever. And thinking about this passage this last week, returning stuff from different things that I uh, got or bought on my own, I, I somehow left the mall and I was thinking about this passage. And for whatever reason, I started thinking about a really close friend who's not a Christian and, and the joy that he lacks in the temporal times. And then it hit me of the joy that he would lack in an eternal time. And I don't know why it didn't hit me long before this, even though I would have known it intellectually or doctrinally, but just the reality, friend, that hell actually lasts forever. Have you ever lost something? Let's just say your phone. Let's not get too dramatic. You've lost your phone, maybe put it in the fridge or maybe put it in your cart and you can't find it and the terror that is just raining out in your life, it might go on for five minutes, it might go on for half a day. God forbid it happened for a whole day. The horror that you feel there, that's nothing compared to the pain and frustration and terror that's happening forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever in hell and there's no escape. The pain that you might have felt by being left by someone or abandoned by someone or left out of a group. That, that pain of emptiness that turns to hardness, that turns to hate, that turns to frustration, that turns to anger. It lasts forever. Friend, Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. And he's saying to people who think that they are so good, they're actually outside of the kingdom. So you must walk away from this text knowing who Jesus rejects. And you can take that as truth because you can see his command. Lastly, what I want us to see from this, what I want you to be able to walk away is not just, I don't just want you to see who Jesus accepts. I don't just want you to know who Jesus accepts. I don't just want you to understand or, or totally fathom or just glean from, but I want you to marvel at who Jesus accepts. There's, there's a lot of 
fear and rightful heaviness to this text. But there's also an amazing amount of joy that Christians can take away from this text. We can marvel, lastly, at who Jesus ultimately accepts. Being reminded in Matthew 7, verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone who will call out to the Lord like these people did, or like the second son did, will ultimately be in the kingdom of God, but those who do the will of the Father are. And when you think about that Jesus accepts this first son, you have to marvel at who exactly he is accepting. Verse 31, look at it again. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Really something to marvel at here because what we see ultimately unfolding before us is that God is a very forgiving God. Jesus is a very forgiving Savior. What must it take to be described as a prostitute is something that I would imagine you you never let slip from your mind. And yet Jesus, in his forgiveness of his people, blots that out forever. The, The shame of being a thief, an unruly tax collector, those who would take from people who didn't have much, those who would take from people who had a lot, They were ultimately even keel in their theft. After a while in their sin, when they responded to the Lord, when they were ridden with sorrow, don't you know that it would have been hard for them to totally understand that the Lord would forgive them? It would never remember the sins that they had performed? That is most likely many of your testimonies as well. The sins of years Or decades, years and years and years piled up against, yet through repentance. All that, the scripture says, what was red is now washed white. The stain that no way could be removed. And in fact, the stain that Satan would constantly try to tempt you to remember is washed completely away. Here we have this marvelous effect of God forgiving his people. We see him as forgiving. We see him as merciful that he would take in people who were so far off. The son that rejected him initially didn't even give him a chance. Where the father said, do this in the vineyard. And the son just said, I love the the Christian Standard Bible's version. It said, I don't want to. That's many of us, right? When we think about serving the Lord or think about doing the right work or thinking about doing the way of righteousness, our natural inclination is I don't want to. I've asked people to do stuff for me before and it really is weird when they just say, yeah, I don't want to. Hey, can, you know, I, I can't think of an example right now, but hey, will you do this for me? Yeah, honestly, I, it's not that I can't. It's that I really don't want to. What an initial indictment on their soul. And yet by their repentance, out an outcoming of the faith that God had given them, Jesus accepts them. These, we'll just call them dirty, rotten scoundrels, are accepted by Jesus 
Not by their rank, not by their status, not by how many things they know, not, not who their friends are, but only by their repentance. The smoking gun is their repentance. This ultimately shouldn't surprise us if we're students of the scriptures because Romans 5 verse 6 says that Christ died for the ungodly. The language there is he didn't die for anyone else, but only the ungodly. The son who rejected him but turned back is the one he accepted. The resume that the first son had was nothing But then ultimately what was given to him was the righteousness of Christ through his death on the cross. And the the drama and the intensity and the attention here in this text is that Jesus' death is just a couple of days away. I don't know about you, but whenever I watch a movie or whenever I read a book, unless it's like some weird, outlandish, new age movie or book, you kind of know what's going to happen. Like, oh, I've... I bet Kristoff is going to get the girl at the end in Frozen. I just kind of assume that's going to happen because of like the two hours of just no duh build up to it. And here stands Jesus, the king of the world, the son, God, who had been spoken of for thousands of years who people would see him and recognize something so different, or he would perform things that clearly only God could do. And he was just days away from the completion of the task that he was coming to, fully serving the will of the Father, something that John the Baptist had been preaching about and speaking about. Just days away. And they were questioning his authority. And yet, in the kindness of his heart, he says the kind of people that he accepts. Faith and repentance is the resume of the first son. Faith, the recognition of God's truth, the conviction of God's truth, knowing it, understanding it, and then trusting in that God's truth, in God's truth. That is what faith looks like. And then repentance, the sorrow for what you've done, the turning from what you've done, not toward yourself, but to Christ, and then clinging to him, trusting in him as the only one who could ever deliver you, the only one who could ever save you. I used the example last summer, but I think one of the coolest pictures for me of what it means to trust in Christ physically, we see in the 4th of July where kids who are scared of fireworks cling to someone around them. They're holding on to the leg of their mom and dad while things are blowing up in the sky. What it looks like to have faith and trust in God is holding so tightly to him, longing to do his will, longing to serve him, longing to see that what we initially do in disobedience is never something we ever want to do again. John Calvin said that repentance and faith are so linked together they cannot be separated. could be summed up that the general reaction of a person who is repentant is longing with all of their lives for the glory and the will of Jesus Christ to be done in their lives and in the lives of other people. Rather than wanting to own Christ, they want to be owned by him. The people in this circumstance, they they want to acknowledge that something unique is happening here, but they do not want Jesus to have ultimate authority over them or even their temple. And what a repentant person is, is someone who wants Jesus to have authority over everything in their life. 
I want Jesus to have authority over my marriage, over my kids, over my job, over my house, over my dog if I've got one. I want him to rule and reign over everything because he already is. But by rejecting him, I am outside of the kingdom of God. So the first son responded to the way of righteousness. Entering the narrow gate, we can see from Matthew 7, the cost surely was great to him. Maybe economic, maybe social, maybe emotional. Having the torment of your soul under the conviction of the spirit that you are inherently wrong in everything that you're doing, it certainly costs a lot to turn and to respond to Christ. But look at what he gets out of it. The language there is that the tax collectors and the prostitutes get to go into the kingdom of God. This, this immediate set of they are a part of the kingdom of God where God rules over everything that are his. I read um, someone this week who was talking about this passage and, and in some of the context they said that they really wish they, they kind of found that this story was a little bit incomplete because they really wished there was a third son. You know, give us an example. Like the first son, not good, but then good. The second son, good, but then totally not good. Why can't we just have a third son who heard the right thing and did the right thing, responded the right way and lived the right way? And ultimately, if you just take a step back outside of this parable, outside of this picture, we are seeing Jesus doing exactly that. That the Son of God is responding to the will of his father. And he does it to perfection. When the father is asking him to go in and save people from themselves, he responds, I go. And he keeps going at it. Jesus comes to the world as the model son, but as the effective and ideal servant of his father. Hebrews 10 expresses it when Christ came into the world. He said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. We have an example here of what sonship ought to look like in our lives. Responding faithfully to the word of God. And we are able to have by God's gift to us this new walk. That we can read in Ephesians 2 verse 13. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ... For he himself is our peace, who had made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the Christ, thereby killing the hostility. We are given new life because of the perfect life that the true son came to give and to provide for us. And in this case, Jesus is drawing a line in the stand and we can see his command over everything. And through seeing his command, we see who he rejects. We know who he rejects and we can marvel at who he accepts. Words that songs can't fully express, but only the soul can desire. Friend, when you are a repentant soul, you are accepted. The longing of every person in the world, right? Just being accepted by someone or something. But know the acceptance of the king of the world. You ever walked into a room where a really important person was? I remember at VBS when I was six years old, and the pastor, who I cannot remember his name, 
walked down the hall and he said, hey, fella. And I remember thinking, he knows me. This is incredible. Marvel at the acceptance of Jesus by your repentance. It costs Jesus his whole life. And it gives you new life forever and ever. Repent and enjoy him forever. And you can enjoy this now. There's uh, an old story about a man who wants to tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. So he sets up the tightrope. This is like in the 1800s, so none of us were there watching it. But sets up the tightrope and, and walks across, balances across Niagara Falls, and people are incredibly impressed. And he turns to a guy back at the very start, and he says, Do you think I can do this in a wheelbarrow? Or think I can push a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls in the tightrope? And the guy said, yeah, I think you can. I mean, you seem like you know what you're doing, and, you know, I don't know you, so whatever. <laughs> so he gets the wheelbarrow, and he's tightroping, walking across, ever so slightly, making it to the other side, and then wheelbarrow's back. And then he says to the guy again, do you believe that I can do this again? And the guy said, yeah, I've seen you do it. I totally believe that you can do it. He said, great, jump in the wheelbarrow. All of a sudden, faith looks a little bit different when we're involved, doesn't it? The Lord is calling us. The Lord has called every one of us to repentance. He's called every one of us to put our trust in him. There is no doubt that there is no safer place to be than in the hands of the Son who by his perfect life died a perfect death so that his children, his brothers and sisters, can live with him forever and ever. There is no safer bet for us to put our trust in. And I hope you do today. Friends, let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning marveling at your grace and your love. Marveling not only at your work, marveling not only at your words, not only marveling at your deeds, but marveling at your love for sinners such as us. God, we pray that we will not just have an initial repentance from our sins, but that we will have a lifestyle of clinging to you, of trusting in you, of, of seeking to do your will. Father, we know that you are building us up through this church and we pray that we will cling to you ever so tightly and pursue you ever so fervently and to long for your will to be done more than anything else in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.